Even amongst the many relatively recent inventions that we already take for granted today, things which many of us can barely imagine life without, despite their having only been made available within the last generation or two, artificial light is one of the most fundamental. Now that's not to say that artificial light as a concept is new. We have evidence that our ancestors, as far back as 400,000 BCE, were using rudimentary methods to achieve artificial light. In most cases, this meant starting a controlled fire. But prehistoric people, as early as 15,000 years ago, had also begun to use very basic lamps made out of hollowed-out rocks, shells, and animal horns, which were filled with grease left over from cooking their meal. They would take the shell, fill it with grease, pop a simple fiber wick into the grease, and they would then light that with their fire. We also have evidence that some groups of our prehistoric ancestors saved themselves a step, and instead of going through the trouble of making actual lamps, they would just thread a wick through a particularly oily fish or bird that they'd killed and light that. Boom. Instant fish lamp. For the majority of human history, that was pretty much the only option when it came to creating artificial light. You burn something, either wood or parts of an animal, and if you were particularly clever, you figured out a way to make that burning piece of whatever portable and longer lasting. This trend continued around the world through the mid-19th century. At that point, whale oil, or more specifically, a type of oil derived from the head cavity of sperm whales, was considered to be the gold standard when it came to artificial light, as it burned clean in lamps and made resilient, long-lasting candles that were in high demand by those who could afford such things at the time. They smelled far less bad than all the other candles that had been invented up until that point, and they were easier to produce. But in the 1850s, there was a shortage of sperm whales due to overhunting by sailors, and that dramatically increased the cost of this type of oil and the resultant candles. And around the same time, in the 1840s, a Canadian geologist named Abraham Gesner was the first modern scientist to refine a substance that became known as kerosene. It had also been refined to various degrees by the 9th century Persians and the medieval Chinese as well, though not on industrial levels and not as cleanly, but this was the first modern refinement of that technique. And by 1860, there were 33 kerosene plants in the United States alone. There was a bit of a business struggle between Gesner and an American chemist named James Young, who filed for a similar patent on a similar petroleum refinement process, and who received his patent first, two years before Gesner received his. But by all indications, Gesner's technology was better, and his end product was cleaner and smelled better when burned for light. And we tend to use the word kerosene to describe this product today because of Gesner's innovation. He coined the term as a contraction of the Greek word kerosalion, which means wax oil. This shift from candles to kerosene was pretty monumental because, again, at this point, 
most people used very foul-smelling, quick-melting candles, if they could afford candles to begin with. Candles were an expensive luxury, after all, and most people just could not afford them, much less on a regular basis. When the sun went down, that was that. Your productive day was pretty much over with. After oil lamps came gas lamps, which were an innovation that actually arrived decades before kerosene, but which took a while to become economical enough to be suitable for use on scale. But by the late 19th century, many city street lamps were gas-powered, and some commercial buildings and wealthy family homes had gas pipes running up through walls to power the gas light fixtures. Gas lighting was leapfrogged pretty quickly, though, by another technology that had been bumbled around with in various ways throughout human history, but which was never truly harnessed for the purpose of making light until around 1880, when the electric light bulb made its first commercial debut on the SS Columbia steamship. The technology was patented by and sold to the steamship's owners by a man named Thomas Edison. Now, although Edison was arguably the man who was most successful in producing and marketing a final consumer-grade version of the light bulb, and he did make numerous adjustments to the concept, making his commercial bulb longer-lasting and less fragile than its predecessors, there were many, many predecessor technologies invented by people around the world that led up to that moment. Edison bought the patent for a method of making an early version of the incandescent light bulb from a pair of Canadian inventors named Henry Woodward and Matthew Evans in 1879. And the first known work on incandescence was done by an English scientist named Ebenezer Kinnersley in 1761. So this was an invention a long time in the making and focused research and development in this space was performed over the course of more than 100 years before the several dozen known and documented inventors and researchers involved were able to push it along and combine it into the usable electric light bulb technology that it eventually became. And even that extended history of the light bulb that I just related does not include all the people who contributed, but who didn't make it into the history books for various reasons, including their location in the world, their background, their gender, their place in society. If they worked for one of the named contributors, for instance, and did the work but did not own the lab in which they worked, chances are their names will never appear in the history books. Anytime we see inventions of this magnitude, it's safe to assume that for every name and date we know, there are at least a dozen other names and dates that are just as important, but which are lost to history. That said, the incandescent electric light bulb was a very big deal and was the primary motivator behind wiring cities, public buildings, homes, and vehicles like the aforementioned steamship Columbia for electricity. It took another decade or so, but by the time this early bulb hit the big time and became more widely available on a scale and at a price suitable for the Vox Populi to take advantage of it, the cost savings it allowed, the cheapness of light it produced, and the quality of that light changed the world in some pretty radical ways. There's a podcast, a limited-run production by the BBC, called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, that is very much worth a listen, worth binge listening to, if you're anything like me, because it's utterly fascinating and it's very well produced 
and each episode is less than 10 minutes long. But that podcast did an episode on the electric light bulb that eloquently explained why it was such a vital innovation, using an argument that hinges on the cost of illumination. And many of the figures I'm about to present are derived in part from that episode. Back in 1743, the president of Harvard University noted in a journal entry that his household had committed a full two days effort to making 78 pounds, or about 35 kilograms, of tallow candles. The smelly, smoky, quick-melting candles that were available before whale oil candles came into vogue. After six months, he wrote another entry that indicated that all of those candles had already been used up. Those candles were produced by a laborious process that essentially required heating up animal fat and dipping and re-dipping and re-dipping over and over and over again wicks into a giant tub full of molten lard. The work itself sucked and took forever, and the candles smelled horrible. They burned noxiously and were both expensive and time-consuming to produce. It was calculated that if you set aside a whole week each year dedicated exclusively to making such candles or doing work that allowed you to afford to buy such candles, that amount of investment would allow you to burn a single candle for two hours and 20 minutes each evening. Candle burning became a little more pleasant when whale oil took over, but it was still not an affordable practice for most people at the time. George Washington was a big fan of this product, but his calculations showed that if he wanted to burn a single candle for five hours each night for a year, it would cost him eight pounds, or over $1,000, about 820 pounds, in today's money. By the year 1900, though, one of Edison's market-ready incandescent light bulbs would provide you with 10 full days of continuous, non-flickery light that was 100 times as bright as a candle for the same week of labor that the president of Harvard's household put in to acquire his stockpile of low-quality candles. Two decades later, in 1920, that same amount of time and labor would earn you enough to acquire five continuous months of that same bright light using tungsten filament light bulbs. Jumping forward to 1990, that same amount of investment, about 60 hours work, give or take, would earn you 10 years worth of continuous, high-quality, reliable, non-stinky, 100 times as bright as a candle illumination. Today, due to the innovation of compact fluorescent light, a standard CFL bulb will net you 52 years of high-quality light of a quality that was impossible to acquire at any price back in the days of candles and lamps. For that same cost, that same time investment, that would have once netted you only 54 minutes of low-quality light, that same amount of investment will get you 52 years of much better quality light today. Another way to look at this progress is to measure our artificial light evolution in the cost of lumens. And a lumen is a metric that is used to measure visible light. Those original light bulbs, for instance, had a relatively high luminous efficacy, meaning overall brightness, of 12.6 lumens per watt 
but a very low luminous efficiency, meaning the amount of light generated by the energy used. Those original bulbs put off way more heat than light, meaning a lot of its energy was expended, producing radiation that did not allow us to see any better. So those old-fashioned bulbs had a luminous efficiency of only 1.9%. Now compare that to a burning candle, which averages about 0.3 in terms of luminous efficacy compared to that 12.6 for that early light bulb, and 0.04% in terms of luminous efficiency compared to 1.9%. And you can see why even ancient light bulb technologies were a huge step forward. Most modern incandescent light bulbs have a luminosity of 16 instead of 12.6, and an efficiency of 2.2% instead of 1.9%. But compact fluorescent light bulbs and LEDs blow both old light technologies out of the water, with 60 lumens and 150 lumens, respectively, and with efficiency ratings of about 10% and 20%, respectively. But the lighting itself only tells part of the story here. LEDs compare very favorably to both incandescents and CFLs in terms of light brightness and efficiency, putting out less heat and more light for each unit of energy it consumes. The overall cost of use and ownership is also far lower, with the total cost of incandescent bulbs purchased over the course of 20 years being about $347. 20 years of compact fluorescence weigh in at less than a quarter of that, at around $80 for 20 years of light. And the cost of LEDs come in at a little more than half the cost of CFLs, at around $45 for 20 years of light. An hour's worth of light today would have cost our ancestors a full week of effort to produce. And their light would have been very subpar compared to what we have. They wouldn't have been able to create anything near the quality of light that we can produce with the cheapest LED bulb today. Not at any price could they have produced something that quality. That same hour's worth of light would have taken folks a few hundred years ago a full afternoon to produce using their far more advanced technologies. In the year 2018, though, it takes most of us a fraction of a second to earn enough money to afford an hour's worth of high-quality light. And that, as much as anything else today, has come to define what the modern world looks like. The way we've reshaped our habits and priorities, our expectations and lifestyles, our rhythms and routines. What I want to talk about today is a vital aspect of life that has changed dramatically due to innovations like bright, reliable, artificial light. Today, I'd like to talk about sleep. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. If you're enjoying Let's Know Things, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash letsknowthings. You can also contribute monetarily via PayPal or Venmo. You can find links to that sort of thing at letsknowthings.com. And if you're interested in coming out and hearing me speak live in person, I will be going on tour around North America from September 2018 to September 2019. You can find a list of tour dates and buy tickets if you care to at becomingtour.com. 
All right, let's get back to the show. Back at school in my university days, I barely slept. And I know that sounds like hyperbole, but I was working on two majors in graphic design and illustration. So it was a lot of studio work, a lot of projects, alongside all the studying. And at one point I had five part-time jobs so I could pay for school and my living expenses. And that was before I started up my first business, which somehow soaked up even more of my time than those other activities were already accounting for. If I ever got even six hours of sleep in a single night during that period, I certainly don't remember it. I moved out to LA after I graduated and in short order started up a branding studio, which fortunately and unfortunately grew pretty quickly, which was beneficial for my bank account, but not so much for every other aspect of my life, very much including my sleep habits. I was working in the neighborhood of 100 to 120 hours per week for months on end, which, if you do the math, does not leave a lot of time for much of anything, and sleep somehow fell low, even on the list of all of those other things I was backburnering. And the stress that was connected to all that work, the amount of money that was on the line all the time, and the reputation that I had worked so hard to build, all of that felt like it was in limbo, constantly. And I was one missed phone call or delayed email response away from having it all come crashing down around me. I was doing better than I could have hoped for professionally, but that success was built upon the ruins of my personal life and health and psychological well-being. Most nights, at around 1 or 2 a.m., I would drive across town to my 24-hour gym to work out until I was too exhausted to worry and stress out anymore. That was the only way a lot of those nights that I could knock myself out for three or four hours before waking up to do it all again the next day. Everything changed pretty dramatically in 2009 when I scaled down my business, started traveling full-time, and eventually started writing for a living instead of relying on clients for my income. And one of the major changes I experienced over those first few months was that I was sleeping for seven or eight hours a night for the first time in my adult life. Pretty early into that new lifestyle, I opted for an alarmless routine, which allowed me to go to sleep when I felt like it, and wake up when I felt like it, and in the years since, I've landed on a schedule as a consequence of that, that usually nets me around seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep each night. And the result of this, and no doubt other changes I've made in the years since as well, but sleep stands out to me as a major one, the consequence of that is that I'm more alive and alert and healthy feeling and productive. Each hour of work I do, while not sleep deprived, seems to result in four or five times as much output as I was accomplishing before. And I'm just generally way happier than I was when I was living in LA as well. Even when I'm changing up my schedule and engaging in strenuous work, these days, I make sure, as much as possible, that all of it fits within the confines of a sleep-sufficient lifestyle. Because the benefits of doing so, of ensuring that I get enough sleep regularly, have proven to be so worthwhile for me personally that it is worth that additional effort. 
Now, this story that I just told you is all anecdotal. So it's my personal experience and personal experiences cannot be trusted in the same way that data derived from a more scientific method can be trusted. This information is all true seeming to me, but it's also quite relative. It's very subjective. And our senses and memories are flawed and unreliable when it comes to procuring legit concrete information upon which we can base actual science and replicable research. So take everything I just told you with a grain of salt. That said, there is a quickly growing body of research that would seem to support my personal anecdotal findings. And some of this research couches the argument in favor of getting sufficient sleep in terms that even the most hardcore coffee for breakfast, lunch, and dinner entrepreneur should be able to understand. The article I want to start with today comes from Big Think, and it's entitled Bad Sleep Habits Will Cost the United States $434 billion in 2020. This piece, like many articles that are published on Big Think, is not itself super amazing journalism, but it does do a good job of summarizing the findings reported in a 100-page comparative analysis research report that was published by the RAND Corporation, which is a nonprofit global policy think tank about sleep and how the quality of sleep that people get ties into a country's financial well-being. Or to quote the paper's abstract summary, Quote, this report examines the economic burden of insufficient sleep across five different OECD countries. And OECD, as a quick unquoted aside, stands for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Taking into account the association between sleep deprivation and mortality, as well as productivity, the findings of this study suggest that insufficient sleep can result in large economic costs in terms of lost GDP, end quote. This research paper is fascinating. I actually sat down and read the whole thing in one sitting, not because research papers are inherently pleasant or light reading, but because the research seems to have been well-conducted, meaning the findings are as reliable as pretty much anything else we have available on this subject, and because the findings are broken down into how insufficient sleep is, in fact, a public health issue, in addition to being a personal one. And it goes into detail about what factors influence our levels of sleep, down to the average daily sleep minutes that certain behaviors tend to steal away from us, alongside broader issues that can branch off into smaller, but still vitally important individual concerns, many of which conceivably could be addressed at the state level, meaning it gives governments ideas about how to treat lack of sleep the same way it treats alcohol addiction or the sale of nicotine-laced products. It provides the data necessary to produce informed and hopefully effective legislation, and it provides arguments and numerical justification for those arguments about how to solve some of the issues that have been identified as detrimental to individual health and as a consequence could be quite costly for our societies. 
So I will link to that paper in the show notes if you are keen to give it a read. It is pretty fascinating and it doesn't hurt to get practice reading research papers of this kind. If you want to bypass some of the errors and flattening that can sneak into even the better scientific journalistic entities work at times. But I'll link to the big think piece as well, which again, does a pretty good job of summarizing the major points of this paper and putting them into context. So let's talk for a moment about what this study says, what conclusions it came to after gathering up and processing all this information. The United States is estimated to have lost somewhere between $281 and $411 billion in 2016, the year that this study was published. By 2020, it's estimated that if current trends continue, the U.S. will lose between $299 and $434 billion a year. And by 2030, that number will increase to between $330 and $468 billion lost. Based on this research, the United States seems to be suffering the worst effects from insufficient sleep at the moment. Though there are cultural inconsistencies between the countries that were studied, the US, Japan, Germany, Canada, and the UK, that could account for some of the gaps between countries, and the size of each country's economy plays a role in how much money is at play as well. But the paper estimates that these five countries combined are currently losing up to $680 billion in economic output each year due to their citizens getting insufficient sleep which is a whole hell of a lot of money and is a particularly large sum for something that most people, including those running these governments, probably would not consider to be a public health crisis if you asked them. This gap between economic potential and economic reality emerges because of the difference in productivity between people who get sufficient sleep and those who do not. Many studies, not just this one, have shown that on average, people who sleep less than six hours each night are about 2.4% less effective than their sleep-sufficient counterparts. And if you tally that up, you'll find that folks who sleep less than six hours per night put in about six days less work each year than their counterparts because they are not operating at full steam. And if you extrapolate that to a country like the United States, which has a population of around 330 million people, you end up with about 1.23 million working days per year that are lost to the mental and physical sluggishness caused by insufficient sleep. Insufficient sleep can also cause school children to develop more slowly, and folks who are sleep-deprived have a 13% higher mortality risk from every single possible cause of death, including accidents that otherwise could have been avoided and health issues that are exacerbated by the lack of immune system strength that would have been gained had they slept for a healthier duration. So in addition to those 1.23 million workdays that are lost from sluggish productivity, you can add in the lost labor from folks who are injured, sick, or dead, and the lost talent potential from students who are carted into classrooms before they've had the proper amount of rest. Add that all together and you end up with some pretty sobering realities. If a country's strength is predicated on its human resources, on the people 
who live within that country and their capacity to create and keep everything running effectively, we would seem to be doing ourselves a grave injustice by not addressing the insufficient sleep issue that would appear to be endemic in many or most countries around the world today. Now, it's one thing to recognize this problem, and it's another thing entirely to address it. Even if you know that you should probably get more sleep, that doesn't mean that your daily reality makes getting that sleep easy. And for many of us, the idea of getting eight hours of sleep per night may seem about as attainable as getting a massage and preparing and eating three healthy but delicious homemade meals each and every day. It's a nice thought, and few people, I think, would turn away the opportunity to do these things if they were offered, but it doesn't seem terribly likely based on the many other realities inherent in our everyday lives. And that is a big part of why this paper about this problem is so interesting. It's framing this data as a government-scale issue, as something that's a potential regulatory issue, something that perhaps could be addressed by society as a whole, rather than each of us as individuals trying to tackle these issues from within a system that doesn't help us do so, and in fact kind of pushes us in the other direction in many different ways. Part of the reason this type of research has only emerged in the past few years is that due to modern technologies and modern research methods, including one that was used for this study, which involved creating macroeconomic simulations that allowed researchers to crunch the numbers that they received in numerous interesting ways, and to extrapolate based on what they found, based on past and current data points, Due to those new innovations, we're finally able to say, with a good amount of certainty, what is actually causing some of the problems that we have long suspected, and have only been able to point at anecdotally up until this point. And just as importantly, we now have some idea, as well, of how we might address these problems. In other words, both our technology and our observational legitimacy in this field have finally reached a point where we can say with a decent amount of certitude what levers we can pull to get which results. And when you're trying to convince big, cumbersome, bureaucratic entities like governments to do things, to create new regulations and pass new laws, it's important that you are able to provide that level of resolution when looking at the problem. Of course, even with research of this kind in hand, and even if governments do decide they want to get that money back, they want to get everyone up to the healthiest possible level in terms of sleep, so we can all be operating at peak efficiency and effectiveness, and not be so consistently and inconveniently sick and injured and dead, there are still issues to work through. And they're some of the same issues that we have faced every time science has determined that certain habits and behaviors that we enjoy or consider to be necessary are actually kind of really bad for us. For instance, based on this research, we can say with fairly solid certainty that people who smoke get an average of five minutes less sleep per day than people who don't smoke. People who consume two or more sugary drinks per day get an average of 3.4 minutes less sleep per day. And people who, based on their body mass index, are considered to be overweight or obese get between 2.5 and 7 minutes less sleep per day than those who are considered to be of a more normal weight class according to that particular measurement system. 
People who get fewer than 120 minutes of physical activity per week sleep an average of 2.6 minutes less than those who get 150 minutes or more. And people who have a medium or high risk of mental health problems, which is a very, very broad category, sleep an average of 17.2 minutes less per night than those with a low risk of such issues. Folks who have financial concerns get 10 minutes less sleep on average than those without such concerns. And people who provide unpaid care to family members and friends, babysitting a neighbor's kid, taking care of an ailing relative, things like that, they get five minutes less sleep per night on average. People with children under 18 who live with them get about 4.2 minutes less sleep per night than those without. A number that seems kind of low to me, but we're dealing with averages here, so I'm guessing there are some substantial outliers at play for that one. Men sleep an average of nine minutes less per night than women. Folks who are separated from their partner rather than living together with them get an average of six and a half minutes less sleep per night than those who are still together. And people who have never been married get an average of 4.8 minutes less sleep per night than those who are married. There are also some interesting work-related data points here. People who have less choice in their work routine sleep 2.3 minutes less per night than those who have more options in that regard. People who have strict deadlines and what they consider to be unrealistic time pressures at work sleep eight minutes less than those without such pressures. People who work irregular hours sleep 2.7 minutes less than those with predictable work hours on average. And people who commute between 30 and 60 minutes each way get an average of 9.2 minutes less sleep each night than those with either a short or no commute. While those with a commute of over an hour each way get an average of 16 and a half fewer minutes of sleep per night than those with short or no commutes. It's important to note that all of the variables I just mentioned are stackable with all of the other variables. So if you have a long commute, are separated from your partner, take care of an ailing parent, and have hardcore deadlines at work that you struggle to meet, and you don't have as much money tucked away in your savings account as you would like, you could be losing nearly an hour of sleep per night. And these are in addition to structural factors like the many time considerations that have you settling into bed around midnight and waking up at six to get ready for work. These are factors, in other words, that keep you awake when you should be asleep. So they compound atop whatever you're already scheduling for sleep each night. So the six hours that you think you're getting and are able to sustain may actually be far less than you think because of these physical, social, and professional considerations that are weighing on you in different ways. What can we do to get better sleep? How might we improve upon some of these fairly sobering numbers and both become healthier individuals and more mentally effective and alert and whatnot, but also be better cogs in that grander national machine and in all the other systems that we are each a part of, our families, our communities, our workplaces and organizations. Research is still rolling in on a lot of these issues because, as I mentioned before, we are experiencing a bit of a renaissance at the moment when it comes to studying things like this. But this research paper was able to refine its advice down to a small number of broad points. For individuals, it recommends setting a consistent wake time 
limiting the use of electronic devices before bedtime, limiting the consumption of things like caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine overall, but especially close to bedtime, and exercising regularly. For employers, it recommends recognizing the importance of sleep and emphasizing getting enough of it as a strength, not a weakness. It also recommends providing proper facilities and amenities to help employees maintain good sleep hygiene, which means basically helping employees stay healthy, get some exercise, not stress out over unrealistic deadlines, and helping them keep work at work. And it recommends discouraging the use of electronic devices for extended periods of time. For the folks running governments and other high-level organizations, it's recommended that they provide support for professionals in sleep-related fields, including those doing research to better understand sleep and its associated problems, and to introduce later starting times for schools, which is apparently one of the better ways to help kids get the most out of their education, as most school starting times, were originally developed with the intention of getting kids out of the house so their parents could go to work, rather than optimizing school and its timing for a child's mental and physical well-being, putting them in an optimal situation for learning and retaining what they learn. Most sleep scientists these days emphasize that the optimal amount of sleep is somewhere between seven and nine hours for most people. Many of us try to convince ourselves that we don't need that much, either because we believe that we are amazing genetic specimens with sleep-defying powers, or because acknowledging that we actually need that much sleep but are not getting it would force us to face the possibility that we will need to structurally change our habits in some way if we don't want to be operating at partial capacity our entire lives. I can speak from experience on this, as I told myself for years that I could operate just fine on four hours of sleep, and that I was at peak operating capacity on the rare occasions I got six hours of sleep the night before. It wasn't until I started to regularly get a full eight hours of sleep that I realized how comparably inept I was previously. I told myself I was doing great, and that I was one of the rare people who could make it work with way less sleep but I was operating from a place of ignorance back then and maintaining that mistruth, at least partially out of desperation, as I didn't know how I could keep going at that pace if I quote-unquote lost those additional hours of my day to sleep. It's estimated that less than 1% of the population are so-called short sleepers, people who need five hours or less of sleep per night and can still operate at what seems to be full capacity despite getting several hours less than the rest of us need to operate at that same level. Scientists have been able to isolate the gene that seems to regulate this difference. The DEC2 genes of short sleepers have a mutation that, when triggered in lab mice, seem to make them into short sleepers as well. And it would seem that this mutation causes people's brains to be more efficient in doing all the cleanup that other normal brains are able to get done in about eight hours. Though what other changes are triggered by that mutation is not currently known. As with essentially everything gene-related, there's a decent chance that this pro has a significant con buried somewhere along the way. 
But data on all of this is still quite sparse, and the only real agreement between scientists in this space is that short sleepers are incredibly rare, and that even if you think you are one, you are almost certainly not. Statistically, it's just not that likely. Especially if you have ever in your life felt sleepy and ever felt like you needed a coffee to be more alert, that's something that short sleepers tend not to experience. So keep that in mind if you are currently telling yourself that you are one of the very few that are able to operate optimally on very little sleep. It's also generally agreed that trying to hack our sleep systems by sleeping in short bursts throughout the day, a practice that is sometimes called polyphasic sleep, doesn't actually work. There are some sleep experts who say otherwise, but notably, most of those particular sleep experts are also selling books about polyphasic sleep. So while it's still a possibility that they are right and the rest of the scientific establishment is wrong, they do kind of have a horse in this race that could be influencing their ability to elegantly backtrack on their support of this concept when new information becomes available that indicates that it's unlikely that this practice is a good idea. We also know that some people require more and sometimes even a great deal more than eight hours of sleep per night in order to operate optimally. It's possible to go your entire life and not know how much is ideal for you for certain because of social and professional constraints, of needing to be up to take care of the kids or to go to school or to commute to work on time. But it's possible that you actually need 10 hours of solid sleep to be fully awake and alert, and you've never been able to experience that feeling. And you may never be able to experience it. Which is a sad thought, but it's a tragic reality of how our genes can mess with our daily practicalities without our even realizing it. Just because those genetic requirements clash with infrastructural realities that are themselves based on unlikely not supported by evidence, averages of needs. Sleep research in recent years has also been increasingly confident in saying that you can accumulate sleep debt, but that catching up on that debt is less efficient than not going into debt in the first place. It could take several hours of sleep to fully catch up on each hour of sleep that you miss, which again, considering all the variables, that can cause us to miss out on sleep is a fairly humbling realization. We also know that our genes regulate whether we are night owls or morning people. So that is a real thing that has a true physiological component. It's not just in your head. And we know that even healthy sleepers, people who are not super stressed out or suffering from too many of the variables I mentioned before, still only spend about 90% of the time that they are in bed trying to sleep actually asleep. So if you set aside eight hours to sleep and give yourself exactly that much time before the alarm goes off in the morning, chances are you're actually only getting at the high end a little over seven hours of sleep. So you'd probably be better served spending at least eight and a half hours and even more ideally closer to nine hours in bed if you want to get a full eight hours of rest. Most recent research seems to confirm that naps can help and that you could, for instance, get seven hours of sleep at night and put in another half hour or hour during the day and still be doing pretty well. 
but that varies from person to person, and it will also depend on the environment in which both sleep periods take place, and at what points during your personal circadian rhythm they fall. Most of us have a peak moment of mental alertness in the morning, and another in the early evening, before dinner time. And most of us have a sluggishness-inducing glucose spike after lunch, the harshness of which is dependent on what we ate, before experiencing another period of fatigue around 2 to 4 p.m. The final moment of sluggishness arrives for most of us later, after that early evening mental wake-up period. But the duration of each of these periods, and precisely when they take place, is determined by our genes, our environment, what we eat, and our behaviors, like how often and if we work out, alongside stressors and our work schedule and other things like that. So figuring out this rhythm for yourself can be super valuable because you can base your sleep habits around it and work with it and optimize for it, and you can tweak certain things in your life to adjust that rhythm to make it align better with your ambitions. But knowing how someone else operates and how they tweak their lives and adjust their rhythms in terms of diet and working out and such will not necessarily give you the same results, so be careful about that. One of the more arguably negative influences on our sleep cycles and this has been true for hundreds of years now, is technology. And more specifically, artificial lights and anything that has a backlit screen. That means the light bulb, as soon as it became mainstream, messed us up pretty good in the sleep department. And the emergence of modern digital culture, where much of what we do throughout the day and night takes place in well-lit areas and on well-lit screens, has only amplified this issue. Some types of light can actually help us regulate our sleeping. Many prominent sleep scientists, and they are prominent in part because they are able to get good press and give TED Talks. So this doesn't necessarily mean that they are more right than anyone else. It just means that they've got better PR. So it's good to stay skeptical here, even though there's a decent amount of evidence supporting this idea. But many of these prominent sleep scientists have come out in support of the notion that sunlight and even lamps that mimic the spectrum and intensity of sunlight could help you regulate your circadian rhythm and feel more alert throughout the day. The idea here is that there are things called Zeitgebers, which is a German word referring to environmental cues that influence our sleep and wakefulness cycles. One key Zeitgeber is sunlight, because it tells our biological pieces that, hey, it's daytime, it's time to be awake, and that can, with time, reset our periods of alertness to align with the moments that we most need or want to be awake. The flip side of this strategy, though, is that blue-hued light, like the light that comes out of many of our devices, like our computers and smartphones and TV screens, can trigger this same effect. So if you peek at your smartphone for a minute or two before going to sleep, you are potentially waking up some of these same alertness-oriented biological responses and making it more difficult for your internal processes to calm the hell down and go to sleep. Many tech companies have recently taken this research to heart and have released sleep modes on their devices that you can activate that will remove most of the blue hues from the screen, which makes that screen less wakefulness triggering in this way. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better than the alternative. 
But the wavelength of light is not the only sleep-related issue with these technologies. Lights of any color can make us more alert and can startle us from sleepiness, but the connectedness of these devices can also keep us mentally on rather than allowing us to shut down because it activates the portions of our brains that manage social standing and relationships. So instead of winding down and getting settled in for a calm, relaxed period of sleep, our brains churn through what amounts to survival-related possibilities and scenarios, thinking frantically about our friends, enemies, how other people see us, and how we should respond to perceived slights. In short, the emergence of electric lights in general messed with our circadian rhythms in all kinds of sleep-killing ways and dramatically changed our social structure to favor always-on productivity and alertness, even though our biological components, our bodies and brains, spent a good long while evolving to be optimized for a world in which we have regular, reliable periods of sleep. But because many of our devices today make us feel as if we are in a room full of people, some of them strangers, and force us to be participatory at all times, always thinking and processing, waiting for pings and blips and vibrations, and worrying that we may not be accepted, or that someone might say something that we disagree with, or that something will happen and we'll miss out on it, that sleep-killing effect is amplified by these powers that our devices have. One of the most consistent pieces of advice offered up by all of the contemporary sleep scientists that I read about while researching for this episode was to avoid these technologies before going to sleep. Avoid blue light for hours before bedtime if you can, and if at all possible, keep your devices in a separate room from where you sleep. Use a simple alarm clock without a bright digital display instead of relying on your phone. Anything you can do to keep lights and devices from messing with your rhythm is a step in the right direction, sleep-wise. Technology and biology aside, though, one of the biggest struggles that we will have with this issue, both as societies and individuals, I think, is the perception in many modern communities that it is good and noble to work yourself to the bone, to the point of unhealthiness, and that it is lazy and morally repugnant to make the time to sleep well and completely. And even though this predilection is more obvious in some communities and countries than others, this is not just a consequence of one group and their ideas. This is kind of a species-wide thing. And it will be difficult to fully diffuse this perception, I think. In part because, as was the case for me back in my LA days, many people consider sacrificing their physical well-being to be a mark of dedication and capability. They compare how much they have given up to how much others have given up in order to show how hardcore they are, how much they're willing to do to climb that ladder. But at a fundamental level, that perspective is both physically and philosophically harmful. It implies that long-term well-being is not important and that the only thing that matters is short-term gains. So you can live up to the standards set by a portion of society, the folks promoting this type of lifestyle. That itself is immensely imbalanced and generally successful by just one metric, money. And even that is only true of a small percentage of that group. Most people who decide to take this approach to burn themselves at both ends in hopes of getting rich before they burn themselves out end up physically and mentally unhealthy rather than being wealthy and mentally and physically unhealthy, the latter of which they hope 
to solve by leveraging the fortune they earned by never getting a full night's sleep. There is a slow but sure movement away from this approach to life, of course. But like many good things, it's not as accessible or well-promoted amongst the general population quite yet. It's percolating amidst the wealthier facets of worldwide society. It'll be interesting to see what we might be capable of, though, as a species, if we had 7 billion people and growing, all properly rested and fed, our individual and overall health as optimal as possible, our brains and hands working at full capacity. We have never seen anything even close to that yet, but that doesn't mean it can't happen if we decide, as individuals and then as groups, that it's important enough to give it a shot. If you are enjoying Let's Know Things, consider taking a quick moment to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really doesn't take very long, but it has an outsized impact for the amount of time and effort invested. You can also help support my work by purchasing one of the books that I've written. You can find a list of those books and a bunch of links to where you can buy them at colin.io. That's colin with one L dot I-O. And as I mentioned in the intro, I will be going on tour in the near future. You can find out more about that, including a list of the cities I'll be going to and links to where you can buy tickets at becomingtour.com. The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that you may have heard of. It's been getting a whole lot of press. Bill Gates recommended it as one of his favorite books of all time. And it's by a man named Hans Rosling. And it's entitled Factfulness, 10 Reasons We Are Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think. I picked this book up because of one of the summaries that I read about it, which called the book by an alternative title. They called it Factfulness, the stress-reducing habit of only carrying opinions for which you have strong supporting facts. And that to me was a really interesting concept and something that is well supported by the content of the book. This is a book with a very definitive point of view. It is optimistic, you might say, but maybe rationally optimistic. It's optimistic based on a crazy amount of data. And that optimism does, in a way, influence the topics that are covered. But it's also an incredibly valuable perspective because it is true, as mentioned in this book and as I've mentioned on this podcast before, that because of the nature of journalism and the news and the business model behind it, but also just what's considered to be valuable. We only hear about certain types of information via those vectors. It is not news that a plane did not crash today. That is something that is perhaps valuable and interesting as part of a larger body of statistics, how few planes actually crash. But if you only watch the news, your perception is distorted by the type of information that's considered to be valuable via that medium, which in this case includes planes that crash and no planes that do not crash. So this book is kind of a collection of that type of perspective and information. And it is steeped in interesting numbers and fascinating statistics. And it does stay true to that alternate title that I mentioned. 
The concept here is that he addresses topics for which he has good data, and the vast majority of that data supports the assertion that things are actually better today than they ever have been in all of human history by essentially every possible metric that we could choose to look at. Now, that's not always going to be true on the individual, anecdotal level, and that's not always going to be true for any given 10-year period within the last 100 years. But on average, this book makes a pretty compelling argument that things are just getting better and better. In that way, it reminds me a whole lot of another book I read recently called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. It's a very similar message. It's approached from a similar but more numerically rich angle than that book. So if that approach and if that perspective sounds at all interesting to you, Factfulness by Hans Rosling is a very compelling and interesting, and fortunately, quite uplifting read. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on most networks. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.